0: Turn with me to the first chapter of the book of John tonight, John chapter number one. I want to take just a few moments tonight and preach to you on the marvelous grace of God. Boy, can I tell you that I marvel at God's grace. It's it's awe-inspiring to consider the grace of God, to consider what God was willing to accept that He might give to me what He had. I mean, that's grace tonight. We try to define grace, and old Harold Sightler used to say that trying to Define grace is like trying to hug a mountain. You'll never get it done. It's like trying to sound the depths of the sea. Uh, there'll always be areas that are unsounded and untouched. Tonight, as I marvel about the grace of God in my life and in your life, it astounds me how good God really is. If I could give a simple definition of the grace of God, I'd say it's the goodness of God bestowed upon undeserving man. You and I didn't deserve God's grace, and that's why It's marvelous. It's an unreasonable thing that God would be good to us. We've done nothing but wrong towards Him. I mean, He created mankind in perfection and innocence, and man quickly fell in that state. And then even afterwards, when God pursued after man in His grace, time and time and time again, and through ages and through dispensations, man has attempted to spurn the good grace of God But then even in my life and in your life, the times that God has had to pursue us. And you might say, Preacher, you saved as a 10-year-old boy. And I was saved as a 10-year-old boy. But can I say that even as a Christian, there's been times that I've spurned the grace of God when He sought to be good to me and I've sought to run from Him. When He sought to guide me and I sought to guide myself. When He sought to bless me and I sought to sin and to rob God of the ability to bless me. It marvels my soul to consider how good God's been to me. I don't deserve it, and you don't deserve it tonight, but that's why it's grace. Neighbor, if you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about something that you don't deserve and I don't deserve. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about something unattainable and unreachable to you and I. That's grace by its very nature is that we could not reach it. We could not grasp it. We could not apprehend it. We could not attain it. We could not earn it. We could not warrant it. It's grace tonight that He's bestowed upon us. And I marvel tonight at the goodness and grace of God. In John chapter number one, I want to give you three thoughts very quickly. It's not all going to be in John chapter number one, but just three quick thoughts about the grace of God that I believe you'll agree with. I believe you'll find them to be true in your life as you trust Christ on a daily basis. The Bible says in verse number one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. I want to read those two verses, verses 16 and 17 once again. We have the first introduction of the name of Jesus Christ in the book of John. And it's associated with the grace of God. When it says, And of His fullness have, we, have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses... But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father... Thank You so much for this opportunity to be in Your house. Now, Lord, help us in the preaching and in the listening, Father. Help us in submitting to You tonight. I pray that You'd encourage each and every heart, Lord. Convict each and every heart according to Your will. Father, help us to be willing to submit our lives to Your examination and to Your exhortation. If there's one amongst us, Lord, that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Show them the cross of Christ. Lord, and show them the grace that you have pardoned and bestowed upon us. We love you tonight, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Very interested in the phrase that's used For the Bible says in verse 16, and of his fullness have all we received and grace... For grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I want to give you three thoughts tonight. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you before I preach them. I want to say that the grace of God is manifested. We just read that in these passages we'll touch on it in a moment. But can I say also that in the Word of God the grace of God is magnified? It holds a special place in God's dispensational plan. And then can I say that for you and I, the Bible teaches that the grace of God is manifold. It's multiple, it's various, it is uh, fine tuned to each situation. As we've already said, the Bible teaches that grace is and has been manifested. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that grace was manu- manufactured at Calvary. No, I'm saying that grace was manifest at Calvary. As you read in the Word of God, you'll find the first time that the word grace is used is concerning the life of Noah in Genesis 6-8, when it says, "...but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Listen to me, brethren. This whole thing of grace is not just a New Testament doctrine. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that the law did not exist in the Old Testament? No, of course the law existed, but grace also existed in the Old Testament. The book of Romans declares plainly uh, that David had, uh, by faith, his sins were not imputed unto him, but the righteousness of God was imputed unto him. Before the law ever existed, the Bible teaches that Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord the Bible speaks of Abraham. You know, I've always liked this phrase. You know what the Bible calls? Abraham calls him a Syrian ready to perish. I mean, just a worthless dog. I mean, just a man that you would never figure and never would have gathered that God would ever make anything of the life of Abraham. What made Abraham so different from all of the other men that walked the earth in that time? You say, it's because he believed in God. No, he didn't. He didn't believe in God. In fact, when God revealed Himself to him, the Bible teaches that uh, that Abraham was disobedient to God. God didn't pick Abraham because he was a just man. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was a wicked man. Why did God choose? him? You say, well, God chose Abraham because He knew what He would do in His life. Oh, you mean mess up repeatedly over and over and over again? Read the life of Abraham. You'll find that the Bible teaches he was a friend of God, but you'll find that many times he didn't act very friendly towards God, you'll find time and time again that Abraham messed up in his life. You say, oh, well, preacher, uh, God chose Abraham because he knew that the Jews would come from him. No, don't get the cart before the horse tonight. The Jews came from Abraham because God did choose him. You say, well, preacher, why did God choose Abraham? He chose him by grace. Abraham didn't deserve it. Abraham wasn't worthy of it. But that's why it's grace tonight, is because God chose him. Not of his own works, not of his own righteousness, not of his own ability, not of his own availability even, but because it was by grace. Do you know that's true of you and me? That's true of you and me? I mean, neighbor, if it wasn't for grace, we wouldn't know we were lost. Now you say, preacher, are you saying we don't have a choice? No, of course we have a choice. The Bible shows us many people that spurned the grace of God. Uh, But the fact is, none of us deserved the grace of God. God's not up there picking an all-star baseball team, amen? He's not up there saying, boy, I need that fellow for my team. But He said, whosoever will. That's what grace is. Grace says it doesn't matter who and what you are, God will save you. doesn't matter what you've done, God will save you. doesn't matter if you've done a lot of good things, God will save you. doesn't matter if you've done a lot of bad things, God will save you. That's grace that is freely offered to any and all that will come unto Him. So grace has always existed because grace, very simply, grace is not salvation. Salvation comes by grace. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Why do you say that? Well, because I'm already saved, but I still need the grace of God in my life. Because grace is the goodness of God bestowed upon an undeserving mankind. And go all the way from Genesis 1, 1 all the way to the end of the book and you'll find the grace of God is present. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You know what it means when it says neither shadow of turning? It means God don't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Somebody say amen right there. Neither shadow of turning. You know why? Why? If if God's goodness upon us was based upon our actions, there'd be a shadow of turning. Every time we'd sin, there'd be a shadow of turning. Every time we'd falter, there'd be a shadow of turning. Every time we in unbelief did not follow Him, there'd be a shadow of turning. But because it's by grace, there is no shadow of turning. It's by His goodness and by His mercy that He's done these things. So what does it mean when it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, what you'll find is this. You'll find that the under the dispensation of the law, as the Word of God in its ceremonial law foreshadowed the coming Savior, that grace, though present, was not necessarily the theme through the Word of God. You say, preacher, are you saying it wasn't there? No, it was there. It just wasn't manifest. It wasn't expressed towards mankind in a universal way. You see, God in the Old Testament was dealing with the Jews, but you'll find Gentiles that got saved. You say, how did Gentiles get saved? Same way you and I do. By grace. But God's dealings were with the Jews. Now, God was dealing with the Jews in grace, uh, no question at all. But why was God dealing with the Jews and not with the Gentiles? Because the Jews were elected. The Jews were God's people. There was grace in a sense, but a free and full pardon and grace was not expressed to the world as of yet. They could put their faith in the Jehovah God of Israel. The problem is, how would they hear of the Jehovah God of Israel? There wasn't anyone sent out into the world to proclaim the truth of Jehovah God. There wasn't anyone sent out into the world. Uh, The Jews were commanded to be separated, and they were commanded to have no part with the unclean Gentiles. But the Bible teaches us that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I want to read a couple verses to you. The Bible says in the book of Titus, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's what that word manifest means, isn't it? Hath appeared to all men. Isn't it wonderful that you can't give the gospel to the wrong person? Isn't it wonderful that you can't give the gospel to someone that can't be saved? They may not be willing to be saved, but the Bible says that this grace has appeared to all men they 're able through the grace of God, to know Christ and to know His salvation. Why is that because it 's been manifest to this world? Uh, we could talk about the historical aspect of Calvary. We could talk about the fact that uh, that Jesus Christ is the most important and prominent figure in human history, and I think there 's no question that our Lord is and was. We could talk about uh, the Word of God where it teaches that the gospel had been preached unto all the corners of the earth, and there's no question we could talk about that. But I believe the reason the grace of God hath appeared unto all men is not because they necessarily know about it, but because it's available to them. Each and every man, woman, boy, and girl, if they're of an age to understand their lost state and to come to the Savior, they can have grace through the full and free pardon of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 2.9. How was this grace manifest? The Bible says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's how the grace of God has appeared unto all men and that God has made grace available to any and all men. It's not that in the Old Testament a man could not put his faith in the Lord. It's not that grace was unavailable in the Old Testament, but it was unproclaimed in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches that in the New Testament Christ died publicly, openly. Uh, the book of Galatians speaks of Christ being evidently set forth, crucified amongst the church at Galatia. And can I say to you tonight, friend, that no matter what your situation, Christ died. For you, and his grace has been manifest, and it's available, and you can be aware of it. You can know Christ tonight because of his grace. His grace is manifest. But I want to give you a second thought. I believe as we read the Word of God that we see that His grace is magnified. Look at what it says in the book of Ephesians, chapter two. You can turn there if you like, or you can listen as I read. The Bible says in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, For His great love wherewith He loved us. Boy, that's a beautiful verse, isn't it? For His great love wherewith He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible teaches that God magnifies grace. As we read the Word of God, and particularly the book of Hebrews, we find that the law, uh, the book of Romans says that the law was just, and the law was good, and the law was right. There was nothing wrong with the law. But the Bible says that the law was weak through the flesh. What flesh? Was it Christ's flesh? No, His flesh was sinless. And so the law had no power over the flesh of Christ until He, in a propitiatory manner, made Himself sin for you and I. The law had no power over Him before that. He kept the law and He fulfilled the law, but nowhere could the law condemn our Lord and Savior. I just read it in John chapter 8 last night. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? The law had no power because uh, death's power comes from sin and sin's power comes from the law and the law's power comes from our sin-sick flesh. It's a vicious cycle. But the law was weak through the flesh. Whose flesh? Your flesh and my flesh. The law was good. You won't find a single evil commandment in all of the Old Testament. You won't find a single commandment that will do you harm in the Old Testament. You won't find a single thing. I mean, listen, neighbor, I'm not a legalist in any way. I'm not a Judaizer in any way. You'll find me, neighbor. I, I, if I like coffee, I drink it. Amen, Brother Ralph? I, that don't bother me. if I, I I eat bacon on just about everything. Sometimes I make things out of bacon just to be eating bacon. Somebody say amen right there. I mean, I'll eat pork chops. I'll eat pulled pork. I'll eat ham hocks. I might eat chitlins if you made me some. Amen. I have no problem with that. I understand that this handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us has been taken out of the way and nailed to His cross. I understand that. But there's not a single Old Testament law that was wrong or bad for you. Where did the power of death come in the law? It came through our inability to keep the law. So the Bible teaches that the Old Testament, though it was a good way, it was not the best way. And the book of Hebrews says that He hath done away with the old way, that there might be a new and living way, consecrated through the veil that is to say His flesh, His perfect flesh, His sinless flesh. The life that He lived in this world in righteousness and in sinlessness is the way through to grace. The Bible teaches that grace is the better way. Grace is the chief way. Grace is the primary way. But let me give you a second thought. We see from this passage that grace is the theme of God's redemptive work, that in the dispensation of the ages to come, he might show through his grace and kindness toward us by Jesus Christ, show his exceeding kindness. Let me tell you, and I just want to give you a rundown. I'll try not to be too lengthy with this, but I'm asked very often, why did God allow sin into the world? And some will inevitably say, well, God didn't allow it. God didn't know God is sovereign. God did allow sin into this world. God did not condone sin into this world. God did not bring sin into this world, but God did allow sin to enter this world. And I'm asked very often, why? Why did God allow that? Why did he create Lucifer knowing he would become Satan? I'd say, why did He let me and you draw a breath knowing we'd be sin-sick in our lives? But uh, people ask that question often. Let me give you a very simple answer. Angels cannot know grace. The purpose of the redemptive plan of God from Adam till now is the expression of God's grace. You see, God has many attributes. The Bible teaches that God is love. It's part of His essence. But what meaning is love if there's no one to love with it? God is grace, His goodness, His mercy, His kindness. But what good are any of those attributes without being able to be expressed? Let me ask you this. If they're not expressed, where then would the glory be? You see, it's all about His glory. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 uses the phrase over and over again, under the praise of His glory. The purpose is that we might bring Him glory. Do you know why I glorify Him in my life? If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd have no reason to glorify Him. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't see the need to glorify Him. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't know what to say when it was time to glorify Him. But because of grace in my life, I'm able to give God glory. I'm able to say what He's done for me. I'm able to say how good He's been to me. I'm able to proclaim my sinfulness and His righteousness. I'm able to proclaim my bankruptcy and His abundance because of His grace. I'm able to express these things. The theme of God's redemptive plan is that of grace. I like the old song, talks about when we'll sing uh, with the millions of heaven. And the Bible says, but uh, when we come to sing redemptives, redemption stories, speaking of the angels, they'll have to fold their gilded wings, for they know not uh, the love that Christ's salvation brings. There are songs the angels will have to sit out on. They don't know what God's grace is. They don't know what His mercy is. They know of His judgment. They know of His righteousness. They know of His holiness. But I believe, brethren, though the angels fly around the throne and cry out holy, holy, holy. The book of Zechariah chapter 4 says that when the time comes that the kingdom of God is set up, that you and I will bring forth the headstone with shoutings and crying thereof, saying, grace, grace unto it. They cry out holiness. But you and I, friend, we cry out Grace. That's what means something to us. You say, are you saying, preacher, the holiness of God isn't important? No, if it wasn't for the holiness of God, His grace wouldn't mean anything. But I'm saying that the theme for your life and my life is that of grace. Through His goodness, grace is magnified. But let me say that grace is magnified to such a degree that it is exclusive. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 11 and verse 6. It's speaking in context of the Jews. But I believe it reflects your life and mine. It says, And if grace, if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's a little bit to wrap your mind around. Let me read it once more. And if by grace, speaking of salvation, of the goodness of God, and of the favor of God, and if by grace then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Can I say to you that the grace of God is an exclusive ideal? You won't find grace intermingled with works anywhere in the Word of God. Let me say that a grace mingled with works is heresy. Because if we claim that through our own ability we can attain God's favor, then we're claiming that God's righteousness is not sufficient. I know there's many that would seek to work their way to heaven. I understand that. And uh, on the one hand, it's bad news. On the other hand, it's the best news you'll ever hear. Try as you may, it must be by grace. Your works can't get you there. Your work. How many good works would it take? I can't tell you how many good works it'll take because there's no number that would be enough. But I can tell you this, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I can tell you how much grace it took. I can tell you what it took for you to be saved. It wasn't by works of righteousness, which we have done, the Bible teaches, but by His grace, by His mercy, by His washing. That's how He saved you and me. I reject any gospel that claims an adherence to works as a salvitic element. I can't put it much plainer than that. Well, I guess I could use a few words that ain't quite as, as as catchy, but I claim no association with salvation by works in any way, shape, fashion, or form. The Bible teaches that if it's by grace, it cannot be by works. And if it's by works, it cannot be by grace. It must be one Or it must be the other. I've heard people that believe this way. They believe that Christ died for our sins. But we must assist Him through our good works. The Bible teaches that if you could attain it through your good works, there'd be no need for Christ to have died for you. The Bible teaches, I like what Christ said on the cross. As He hung and bled and died, and gasped His last breath, cried out one last time, He made this statement. He said, It! is finished. What does that mean? That means it's done. That means nothing is to be added to it. And nothing is to be taken away. (laughs) I ain't going to preach it tonight, but you know the Bible says the same thing about the Word of God. And on Calvary, the redemptive plan of God was finished. And he said, it is finished. I believe, neighbor, the same way that we ought not take any away from the Word of God or add any to the Word of God. I mean, concerning the gospel of Christ and the grace of God, I don't think we ought to add anything to or take anything away. It's by grace. I want to give you a final thought. And I'm going to hush tonight. I want to say that grace is manifest. Grace is magnified. But listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 10 says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are familiar with that term manifold, but we think of it in the term of automotive parts. But the word manifold actually means variety, multitude, Plenty. What it means is the idea of abundance. If you read your Bible, you'll find eight times that the word "manifold is used. It's used twice in the book of uh, Nehemiah, it's used once in the book of Psalms, used once in the book of Amos. You'll find it's used once in the book of Luke, once in the book of Ephesians and twice in the book of First Peter. But as we read the New Testament epistles, the word "manifold takes on a new understanding. And three things are spoken of as being manifold. I want to point out two of them tonight. Ephesians chapter three speaks of the manifold wisdom of God. I encourage you to study about that. But I want to read another verse in first Peter. Look at chapter number one and verse six. And I believe the manifold grace of God takes on a new understanding. Peter writing to the saints that had been persecuted and had been scattered says, speaking of the goodness and grace of God and speaking of their trials and tribulations, he said, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Can I say that the temptations that we face in life are manifold? They're various. Uh, there's many of them you probably struggle with things that I don't struggle with. We've talked about that before. We've talked about certain sins that that I don't struggle with, but there's other sins I do. There's certain things that aren't really a challenge for me, but there's other things uh, that just about keep me from getting out of bed in the morning. Some of you know what I'm talking about, amen? You ever had something you struggled with so bad that you didn't even want to face another day? And there's manifold temptations in our life. The Bible says concerning the devil, Paul wrote and said, that he would that we not be ignorant of his devices. He's wily, the Bible says, the wiles of the devil. And I promise you, the devil will find some way if your guard is not up to trip you up. He'll get you through distraction or he'll get you through discouragement. You mark her down. Those are two of the devil's chief tools. And you'll find that every sin that we might commit or everything, every pitfall that we might face falls into one of those two categories. It's either uh, dis- uh, distraction or or it's discouragement, something to get our eyes off of Christ or something to put our eyes on our circumstances. We face things that people couldn't imagine in our lives. I made the statement a couple weeks ago that most people's deepest hurts never surface. And there's people, I promise you, surrounding you that are facing things that you'd never imagine. And they're in manifold temptations and manifold heaviness. They're dealing with things today they would have never dreamt they would deal with. They're facing obstacles today that they never thought that they would face. And their temptations and troubles are manifold. But do you know that God has an answer for every need, Brother Ralph? Every need. And I'm thankful that though we are in manifold temptations, 1 Peter 4.10 says that the grace of God is manifold. You know, there's grace, what the songwriters say, grace for every need. I don't care what you're facing. God's got the answer for you. And you say, well, I don't understand how his grace can help me. I don't understand how his grace. Well, when we speak of his grace, we speak of his goodness and his mercy. We speak of His presence and His power. It's almost a word that we use for an all-encompassing ideal of the relationship between us and God, because everything that we have through God is by grace. But let me give you a practical application. I touched on this this morning, but I just want to touch on it tonight and then close. The Bible tells us in the book of Second Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 7, Paul writing about the time that he had been caught up into the third heavens and he had saw unspeakable things, Therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I don't know if you're aware, but a transition has taken place in these few verses. It's easy to miss, because we think of this as one unbroken thought that Paul is narrating. But it's interesting that as he recounts this story, he speaks of the crushing burden that this thorn was. We do not know what the thorn was. The Bible doesn't tell us. You know why that is? I believe this is why it is, Brother Ralph. Because our temptations are manifold. I don't have to be suffering from the same affliction Paul was for God's grace to be sufficient. I might be suffering something greater. I might be suffering something lesser. And you'll find that everyone else are the ones with the lesser problems. Everyone else are the ones with the lesser problems. Our problems are always bigger. Everyone else's problems are always smaller. You reckon why that is? It's because you're not living it. That's why. It's because you're not facing it. If you were in their shoes, you might find out how big of a problem that really is. But the Bible teaches that after he pleaded with God and begged with God and cried unto God, that's a man that hasn't resolved himself yet. You know, Brother Charlie, that's a man that's still holding on. That's a man that's hoping for something. That's a man that's seeking the intervention of God. We find that God does. He does not intervene, but he does intercede. And he speaks to him and he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. You might say, preacher, I don't know what that means. I don't know how I gain access to this grace. We find that in the very next verse, Paul's attitude changes. And you know what he says most gladly? That's a whole different man from two verses earlier. Two verses earlier, it's a messenger from Satan. It's a thorn in the flesh. It's sent to buffet him. It's a burden. It's a trial. It's something he's crying unto God to take away. And two verses later, he says, most gladly, therefore. Most gladly, therefore. What changed? I want to say something. I want you to listen carefully. I believe that the grace of God is a very practical thing. But I believe there's times in our life when the grace of God is a very supernatural thing. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I believe that God can touch our lives in such a way as to give us peace outside and in spite of our circumstances. We don't find anything changing in the life of Paul except two things. He came to understand, number one, that what he was bearing was for Christ's glory and it gained God's strength. But I believe that the sufficiency of God's grace that was promised him was realized in his life. Preacher, explain that to me. I can't. Except to say that the Bible speaks of a peace of God which passeth all understanding. When we, uh, with no caution, with no anxiety, you know the Bible says be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. What had Paul done? He had let his requests be made known unto God. He had prayed and asked God to intervene, but he interceded and he answered. And he gave him the understanding that the very thing in his life that he wanted rid of was the very thing that he needed the most. I think we very often, I hope you know what I mean when I say this, I think there's a lot of times we try to put God in a box and gift wrap him and tie him up with a bow on him I think there's times in our life when we want God all figured out and laid out in front of us how it makes sense to us but you'll not get God that way I was just reading in fact I was before we started uh, the the preaching I, I was sitting there and, and during the offertory I was reading different verses uh, in different songs and trying to pick out something that I wanted to share and they was all just too good but the Bible speaks That God is mysterious. His movements are mysterious. And they're wondrous to behold. He sets His foot upon the storm. And He rides the wave. God intervenes in our life in a way sometimes we can't reckon. But we have the promise that if we're in the will of God, that His grace is always sufficient. It's manifold. I don't care what you're going through. God's grace is sufficient. I don't care what thorn you're afflicted with, God's grace is sufficient. You say, preacher, how do I attain this grace? Well, there's some practical ways. You can put your faith in God. You can get in God's Word and get the strength and encouragement that you need. You can cast your care upon Him. But I believe there's a supernatural touch of grace that comes from bringing our needs before the Lord and casting them upon Him. God gives us a peace and a comfort that's inexplicable will passeth all understanding means, isn't it? Paul said, try as I may, I haven't been able to figure it, but you know, since I prayed about it, the Lord's given me the peace that I've needed. His grace is suited for every need. If you're here and lost today, can I say his grace is sufficient to save you? If you're here and discouraged today, can I say his grace is sufficient to uplift you? If you're here today and you have sin in your life, can I say that His grace is sufficient to cleanse you and to restore fellowship? If you're here facing an insurmountable obstacle that you never reckoned facing, can I say that His grace is sufficient to uphold and to sustain you and to strengthen you? What did He tell Paul? My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, it could be you're going through what you're going through so God can get you small enough that He can do something with you. You know, Lester, roll off. you say, you don't ever got to worry about getting too small for God. It's getting too big for him that you got to worry about. And it could be that God is bringing us to a place to where we find the sentence of death in ourselves that will put our faith in him that raiseth from the dead. I don't know what you're facing, but I know there's grace for it. I don't know what you're suffering from, but I know there's grace for it. And I know there's a meeting place. There's a there's a throne room. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of what? Of grace. There's a throne room that you have bold access to tonight. If you need help and encouragement, there's a Savior waiting. Won't you come to Him tonight? Won't you come to Him? Won't you get the help that you need? What will it take to bring us to our knees and to crush our pride, to drive us to the throne room that we might gain the help we need? Tonight's the night. Why don't you get your life laid out before the Lord and get the help or the encouragement or the forgiveness or the strength that whatever it is, there's grace for your need.